Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today on the Hay Kings podcast, I'm joined by Gary Campbell. It's no secret we're in a post-COVID world now. Is there a change coming in the way that we manufacturers look at their supply chains, that the way dealerships get access to parts? Is there regionalization that's to happen instead of globalization? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a massive subject. Um, I'd love to see it go, go more local. Like, for instance, the New Zealand manufacturer I worked for, hydraulic pumps came out of Italy, uh, gearboxes came from Italy, tires came from Israel, I think. Some of the pumps, some of the hydraulic motors and the taper machines came from China. Some of the steel came from China. Some of the steel came from New Zealand. Some of the steel came from Sweden. Like the the high grade stuff came out of Sweden. Probably Germany. Like, yeah, so stuff comes from everywhere. Part of that is price especially anything from China or Asia is generally a price-driven decision. The knowledge in different regions, like um, actually um, the, the baler I knocked out of time in New Zealand before that happened in Italy, it, it sheared a big keyway or something. And we happened to be like a two-hour drive from the Italian gearbox manufacturer. So we're like, right, we'll put the baler on the truck and we'll just take it straight to the gearbox guys and we'll do a gearbox swap in their factory. Was it? I think it was Medina was the Italian town. Oh, okay. And that that town is just gearboxes, motors, and components. Like there is a massive wealth of knowledge in that area. And balsamic vinegar. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and good wine. Yeah, of course. Um, there was a bunch of factories and a lot of different brands. Like there was like Bondioli and Pafesi and a bit of a while back. But there's a bunch of different gearbox manufacturers up there. And they've been running for like, I don't know, 50, 100 years. Right. It would be awesome to for you guys build a gearbox for your baler in America or build a gearbox for a, a little fertilizer spreader in New Zealand. But you can't just build a gearbox factory overnight because it's like a, it's a foundry. There's all the metal the, the metal experience and forging and um, gear hardening, gearbox design, like a super specialized stuff. So unless you're going to hire a bunch of Italians to come and work in your factory, you can't just really set up and become a gearbox manufacturer. And that's also probably a symptom of, I don't think the manufacturing industries are seen as a cool industry anymore. Like how many people do you know, like, oh, I want to go and work in a factory when I grow up, or I want to be a, a machine designer. It's not really a very common thing. The supply chains, whilst they're driven by money a lot of the time, it's also driven by that's where that good stuff comes from. Um, like you go into go into Germany and like you know Bosch make the diesel injector pumps for from what I can gather like nearly enough every tractor on the market how are you going to replace that like I just I don't know how to change it like at the minute in my current job I'm looking for some stainless stainless tube fittings for some scientific experiment they all come from Italy we couldn't get them because of COVID but no one in New Zealand manufactures them I can measure the parts, reverse engineer them, and get a local guy to make them, that triples the price. Again, there's not many people that can do pharmaceutical-grade machining, so you're kind of stuck to what you're after. I'd love to see it becoming more local. I don't think it's as easy as what people anticipate. So the idea of local is nice. The cost is always a question. But maybe this idea of specialization and expertise, where you get into some of these industries where... There isn't enough global demand to have a knowledge base, that level of expertise, gearboxes in every country. 
the Italians have that comparative advantage where they're the best in the world and they're the ones that produce all the gearboxes for the whole world because that's the way the economics work out. Yeah, like from memory, I think there's two, possibly three manufacturers that make the big main gearboxes for square balers. Like that's it. And quite often it'll be the same manufacturer in your New Holland as is in your Massey Ferguson. Like under the skin, they're quite similar pieces of kit. Axles and hubs, again, there's only a few guys making them. Share them across all sorts of industries. Well, it depends who you believe, but I think there's a shift beginning to happen into um, decentralized manufacture and part supply. I've been reading a little bit recently in a few of the different industry journals and stuff, beginning to be 3D printers used for part supply. I'm still a little bit on the fence with 3D printers, like, because I've, I've used them a few times for prototype parts and componentry. And I'm of the few that a 3D printer should be used if it can do something better than an existing machine. So like you can you can 3D print geometry that you couldn't make on a lathe. So in that case, it's better. But there's a few guys who are starting to use them in dealerships for parts. Maybe a German or a Scandinavian bus manufacturer. And they're going to look, some of the plastic trim in the bus, you know, we sell two of those parts a year. It's injected, it's injection molded. Yeah. It's a very expensive mold cost. The setup cost for you know, two pieces. Setup cost is phenomenal. But we can 3D print it and it's like 99% is good. You'd never use the 3D printer in the production sense. But to have it in the back of the storeroom when some random bus operator needs a spare part, you can print it out there and then. Um, so I think that might start becoming more commonplace. What I just heard you say is we have a new technology that's going to allow us to decentralize some of our production. It's heading that way. I don't think we're there just yet, but it's definitely coming. Like I was at a conference last year about 3D printing here in New Zealand, and I held a satellite engine in my hand that got pumped out of a 3D printer. So like the capability is there, the potential is there to do it. It's just whether or not the it's whether or not the manufacturers want to let go of that stuff too. Because once you start putting the CAD files out into the public domain, you no longer control it. So you're losing your IP and and then also because 3D printing is such a new technology, it's very hard to guarantee it. We the engineering community knows if you take a big bit of billet steel and you water jet it into a rough gear shape, machine it and punch a keyway into it. It's going to have a certain strength characteristic, but we're not really sure to a really confident level 3D printed metal gear would work because it's got different internal grain structures, blah, blah, blah. So like, it, like it's, it's, it's coming, but like we're still like not sure yet. So First of all, metallurgy is still a science. Second, there's variability in the durability of these components. Yeah. And that variability is hard to ensure. I, I under, and then losing IP is a big deal. That's how a manufacturer makes money is to continue to develop new IP and without new intellectual property IP, you don't have anything. Once the patent expires, you have copycats and and your profitability goes out the window. Yeah, I've um, had a conversation before around actually not patenting um, a piece of equipment because if you patent it, it's written down, it's in black and white what you've done. If you don't patent it, Good luck working it out. <laughs> Some serious stuff to where it can't be reverse engineered. <laughs> Sometimes there's just like 
oh, like just little little tiny things you wouldn't think about. Like maybe an orifice in a hydraulic hose causes a back pressure spike, which makes a valve work a certain way, or the guys on the shop floor have worked out how to make something a certain way that's actually really difficult to make that without doing you can't you can't make that machine do its thing. So I guess the other thing with like supply chain stuff, like there's there is potential. I mean, people have been talking about it for a long time and it hasn't turned up yet, but I think automation is coming. The ag machinery industry that we see today, if it goes full autonomous, it's going to be completely different. Like um, the Fent guys are working on a quad bike size swarm tractors that will have like 50 tractors going and planting. Actually, my my old university just finished a project last year where they grew a hectare of barley from like, from start to finish, seeding, a cultivation seeding, fertilizer spraying, harvest, and a hectare of barley, and no one actually entered that field. Like It was fenced off. It was fully autonomous. So And it was with all off-the-shelf componentry, just, just to prove that it's doable. If that kicks off, then we're probably going to be using very different equipment compared to what we're using nowadays. We, are, we might not be using the 500 horsepower quad track and 60 foot cultivator that requires big heavy gearboxes out of Italy. Maybe we're going to be using a quad bike size that can be made with a 3D printer or can be plastic as opposed to heavy steel. Like so, if that kicks into gear and actually becomes a big thing, it might allow the the supply chain to change. But it's it's all up in the air. It's a massive unknown. We have a very similar thought process, but I came to it completely different. I was playing Farming Simulator. I've mentioned that I'm from northern Washington and farm at 2,000 feet, and I have about a 100-day growing season. So, you know, when the snow's over top of the fences, you got, you got to get your fix somehow. So I was on Farming Simulator. Uh, I got a couple of mods. The bank mod is a good one. That That's a really good one. And what I found is you could get mods for automation. Simple interfaces AB lines in big square fields on a game is is easy, of course, and that, that isn't real world. But you could draw your boundaries and have the tractors run AB lines. And what I found, it's less capital intensive. It took less money to have several small tractors running in a swarm style than it did to get the big 600-horse tractor with the big drill and, and go that route. So what you're saying is that it's possible, and what I'm saying is that it's cheaper and it's scalable. So as we talk about your family farm, that's, what did you say, 50 acres? Yeah, thereabouts. As we talk about your family farm at 50 acres and we talk about my farm at 500 acres and we talk about a wheat farm at 5,000 acres, you just add a few more tractors and that's the difference. Yeah, same base unit, just buy 10 of them or 100 of them, just scale it. Yeah, absolutely. And I... I 100% think that that's the way everything's going to go. Uh, in in the game, there were grain carts, and you could automate that grain cart to go chase down the, the combine once it hit 70% full. Once the grain tank and the combine hit 70% full, it triggered the robot to run out and unload the tractor, and then or unload the combine, and then come back and fill the semi sitting along the road. That's reality. Yeah, like uh, I think is it Kin- Kins is the big grain bin guys in Aussie, yeah. and yeah, they've they've got a an eight series John Deere that would say jury rigged with off the shelf components, and it's slaving to a combine by itself. I think 
it's, it was Caterfold, though I can't remember who it was. It was one of the big mining players. Um, they've just hit their two billionth ton of um, autonomous mining in in one of their test mines. Like it's it's happening. It's just I think the end is, the end users I think are a bit hesitant and like uh, understandably so. Like electronics and farm machinery historically aren't good friends. Like if you're <laughs> gonna have a problem. It's gonna be it's gonna be electronics. You know, it's just that seems to be the way it is. So people are naturally going to be cautious of it. But the capability is there. It's possible. It's just whether or not people want to do it. Um, but I think it's, it's going to have massive potential for maybe productivity gains. Like if, if you're a solo farmer running 100 acres, you're busy all day farming your 100 acres. The agronomy is something that gets done late at night at the kitchen table. Animal health happens when you can get it done. But if your tractor's out there doing its thing by itself, you've all of a sudden freed up your work day to look at your agronomy, to go and really focus on your animal health, try and get some yield gains, blah, blah, blah. Like Once people start understanding that being a farmer isn't necessarily driving a tractor, you can go and do other stuff. Like The, the, the possibilities are massive. Anybody that just drives a tractor and calls themselves a farmer is missing most of it. Yeah. Um, like I've always been of that view. Like I, I was never a farmer. You know, I was a farmer's son, and I drove tractors for other farmers and contractors. You know, I couldn't tell you anything about crop growing. I can tell you about beef cattle from what I learned growing up, but I'm sure as hell not a farmer. You know, like I drove a lot of tractors, but I'm not a farmer. You know, where some people seem to think, even if you're just driving a tractor for your local silage contractor, you're all of a sudden a farmer. And not really, but you don't want to kick that hornet's nest. No, there's definitely agricultural experiences and equipment operators but no that farmer has to be the whole package you have to know the dirt you have to know the crops you have to know the weather you have to know the equipment you have to know finance you have to know a lawyer a bookkeeper (laughs) you have to have a team around you to make those things happen because all the things you really need to know to make a go of farming it's almost impossible for one person but to your point uh i just went I just upgraded from a 12-foot sickle swather to a 14-foot mower conditioner, self-propelled. That's a tremendous gain in productivity. Tremendous gain. I'm still a a small-time, I'm no king by any stretch of anyone's imagination. One of my contemporaries, uh, actually Jacob Cummins, he's been on the podcast before, he was silly enough to let me use his John Deere 60-foot sprayer instead of my 30-foot sprayer. And what I've found is that I have time to do things like podcasts and not just live on that tractor, killing myself trying to get it all done. Yeah, and um, in certain markets, drivers are cheap. They'll, they'll just have someone out there working 100 hours a week rather than investing in the bigger machine to lower travel speeds and they cover the ground twice as fast to go and do something else. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big subject to get into. Yeah, like my, like my partner runs her own business and um like e-commerce completely removed from farm. she's actually she's a, a dairy farm girl herself but yeah, she's in e-commerce now and the big she's been going for two years and the, the biggest learning that's happened in the past month or so is working out how to spend time on the business not in the business and i think a lot of farmers are stuck in that mentality like they think if they're out there doing 100 hours a week in the rain coming home absolutely smashed they've done a big week's work 
and you have right? you've done a, a week's work but if you could work smarter or, or buy a new bit of machinery to make that 50 hours a week you can then focus on the business rather than being in the business and um i think agriculture as well as from well from my experience it's a very conservative industry because I, I dabbled in sales for a little bit before i worked out that i'm not a salesman if you get a new machine to the market if you could get one person in, in an area to take it up and show that it would work, then other people would follow suit. But getting that first one in was really difficult. Yeah, I feel like the ag industry or the rural industry is a bit more conservative. Like people aren't make really risky moves or try something different, doing what's always been done. And maybe that's because, you know, farms will go for generations. So granddad did it that way and dad did it that way. So why would I not do it that way? So that's a, a, few, a few problems with that. But I mean... The the answer to that question is because GPS exists, because 3D printers exist, because the world's different. Yeah, 100%. Like, there's so so many productivity gains to be had with the machinery these days. But then even, I guess, it comes back to people are busy. Like, number of times I've brought a new machine out to someone or, or gone and set up a fiddle test or do a new machine setup, and the people... Quite often, like like a dot dropped off by a dealership, and you don't get there for a few days. So they've had a few days to play with themselves, and they're not using half the features. They're not using it correctly because they just hook it up, plug the PTO shaft on, hit go, and just start bailing. Whereas you turn it and go, hey, have you have you set up the pressure correctly? Have you checked the notters are working? Like a number of different things. But oh no, I've been busy bailing. It's like, well, if you, if you spent half a day reading the manual, you'd all of a sudden unlock all of these other improvements you know yeah no i set my uh, swather operator down with the manual last night and i said you have to read it <laughs> i'm tom swin and i switched to the vermeer tm 1410 trailed mower the biggest impact is capacity we're just getting more hay mowed it's hard not to be impressed by a 20-foot mowing and how much you can get mowed in a couple of hours. We went from 5 acres an hour to 12, 14 acres an hour real easily with this. And that's why I switched to the Vermeer TM 1410 trailed mower. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. Yeah, I, I um, that would probably be the biggest piece of advice I could give to any machine operator is to read the manual. It's like, it's, it's like a window into the designer's head. It's like, this is what the guy who made this machine wants it to do. This is what he envisaged it could do. This is the setting you should change to radically change the behavior. But often they get tossed in the back of the cab and never seen again. Something as simple as header float pressure. That was uh, one of the really key <laughs> things that I need to teach my operators is that header float pressure and how fast we're going to wear out my skid plates. <laughs> Yeah, because it's just like pushing it into the dirt. Absolutely. And you just set it, and it's, and it's a simple thing to do. But And having the awareness, and that and that's probably exactly analogous to setting up the pressure on the baler, or, uh, getting the ISO bus set up for the baler to tell the tractor how fast to drive and all of those kind of thought processes. Yeah, there's, there's just so many different little features in a the machine these days that I don't think I've ever read a machine manual and not or come across something that will make my day easier. Even if it's like how to change a blade, you're like, oh, if I do it that way, it's way easier. Or <laughs> yeah. how to pull out a blade drawer, or, you know, all sorts of things. Could I get your thoughts on what TJ Steele is doing? My first thought is honestly jealousy. Like, I look at what he's building, I'm like, fuck, that is cool stuff. <laughs> um, that's the stuff that I would love to have built when I was doing design or field testing. Like it looks, it looks like it's bulletproof. It looks like it's built for purpose. It's epic. 
but it only works for him, I guess, or people like him. Like I looked at a little bit what he's doing, chopping corn stalk and bailing it for the feedlots in Texas, right? I, I can't think of anywhere else that's going to have that appetite for capacity. And it's, I don't know, the closest the closest comparable machine to his self-propelled Swaffer would be the Crone Big M or maybe the Class Cougar, which I think is discontinued, the big five more one. So like the, the Crone Big M has got a very big uptake in Ireland, but it's got to fit down Irish roads. It's got to fit on a European rail network for transport from the factory to the dealership. Um, it's got to meet, I don't know what it's up to now, tier five engine requirements. Um, if one of the European manufacturers to make a TJ Steedle style massive swaffer, they'd have no market for it. So I can understand why the market hasn't done it. But when I look at what TJ is doing, I, I think it's phenomenal. His large round baler, um, again, it, make, it makes sense. It's a simple machine. Well, I mean, simple, like a round baler is a simple machine compared to a square baler. Agreed. Um, Nodders. Nodders is the difference there. Nodders are complicated. Like They are super complicated pieces. Like Not only are they complicated in conceptually tying a knot mechanically, but tight machining, machining tolerances, forging. Like They're a very complicated little thing. So a round baler trumps it. Europeans aren't going to use a baler that makes a bale that size. Um, Kiwis wouldn't use it. It wouldn't. It wouldn't go up some of the hills in the North Island. Yeah. So I, although I can see what he's doing and why he's doing it, I can also understand why the industry hasn't taken it up. And that he, I'd say, he's got to be like a 0.1% of the market. You know, like he's such an outlier that I can't see any manufacturer want to chase his business. But yeah, I, I've, it's very impressive what he's doing. I'd say there, there's probably never going to be a large manufacturer who will take up that market. But if it was an off-the-shelf custom machine, I think there'd be a market for it. Like if he was to make another one of those swaffers for someone else like him, I think it would be very successful. Right. But I can never see a large-scale manufacturer doing it. What you're saying is he would make the chassis and the lift arms, and then somebody else would go out and buy three headers, three off-the-shelf headers, yeah. and, and make it go. But then also, I've never, I've never really given it a lot of thought. But I don't really understand why the American market, in particular, runs the self-propelled Swaffer when Europe, Australia, New Zealand are all running like three hundred fifty horsepower tractors with triple mowers. Like I've, I've never really looked into it and seen why that is. Like, what's the difference with the American market that they have a self-propelled standalone? disc bind or swaff or whatever you want to call it right and our guys are running triple mowers which are seen to be just as productive but will be cheaper because it's a mower rather than a full unit so maybe I'm, i must i must be missing something like there's no reason why you guys would be such outliers if there wasn't a good reason for it i'm i'm not entirely i'm at a loss i don't know either but I do know that I've seen more triple mowers in Washington than I've ever seen before this year. Whenever I've jumped between engineering jobs, I've always ended up driving tractors in the interim while I'm waiting for stuff to change. And I was driving for a very large contractor in the South Island, New Zealand, a couple of years back. And some of the drivers are now, now over at, is it Robinson Farms in, in Texas? Like that really big custom cutting outfit. But yeah, they're, they're all running triple mowers and stuff. So they're starting to come in. I'll tell you that for us in our export market, where we're trying to make maybe the best hay in the world, we have a dedication to 
the quality of the cut and the conditioning. I know yeah. we have very large producers in central Washington, the kind of guys that are doing 30,000 tons a year, and they've gone from 14-foot headers, that rather they went from 12 to 14 to 16 and back to 14, and now they're running 12-foot headers again because they can get a faster dry down and a better product. And I know that, right. okay. And I know that they switch out their conditioner rollers every year so they get the optimum crimp. So they get that fast dry down that they have to have to make that super high quality hay. So maybe there's something to be said for that that particular header width. I don't know. I I do not know. From what I see, you guys, you don't do a lot of silage, do you, as such? Or no, not a lot of bailage. No, like there, wrapped wrapped bales. There's a few pockets. Uh, Western Washington State is one of those pockets. Rather, Western Washington, Western Oregon, and then you get back east. Uh, to the eastern half of the country where it's more humid uh, they get a lot more summer rains there's more wrapped hay where you get tube wrapping and that kind of stuff very few places in the u.s that do individually wrapped bales whereas that seems to be like that's would be the main market segment in ireland uk western europe and new zealand like oh yeah it's like it's a risky game to make hay where i'm from um, individual wrapped. Um, why? Why not a tube line, or why not just chop it and put it in a bunker? Um, chopping in a bunker normally means you have to be pretty committed, and you're doing like I don't know, fifty acres at once. You know, you've got a big lot of land to drop in one hit. Whereas individual wraps, you can go and pick off that field when it's at its optimum growth stage, and it's a lot more flexible, so you can get get some pieces done. Labor, like if you run a combination baler wrapper, you can have one guy go out and mow it. He can come back to the yard, pick up the baler, go and bale it. Tube wrapping, you've got to have a baler, a trailer, a loader to pick it up, take it to the stack site, put it into the tube wrapper, have someone run the tube wrapper. Um, but yeah, um, there's quite a big pocket of that in Canterbury, so South Island, New Zealand, there's quite a lot of tube wrapping down there because they can. They'll do a tube wrap down inside of a fence line, so like they can put like a hundred bales in that end of the farm and a hundred bales over here for when the when the herd of cows is over that end. So flexibility that way. I know in Ireland, like field conditions, when it's wet, you can get a wrap a bale or wrapper on the field before you get a chopper on the field or or steeper stuff. Like that's a better thing to do with that. Yeah, choppers and, and yeah. tipper wagons on steep hills are not fun. <laughs> No, it's a rather daring, I mean, daring endeavor. But the, the Kiwis push them into some crazy places. Like I thought, I thought Sweden and Italy was steep, and then I came down here, and the guys here are just on another level. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for having me, John. It's been cool. Mm-hmm.